0: Father in heaven, we thank you so much for bringing us up to this mountaintop for the blessings we've received already. And now at the beginning of this new day and this new week, we pray, Lord, for your help. We pray for wisdom as we talk about a most practical aspect of our Christian experience, something we all deal with, and that is money. And may we be able to give glory to you even in this area of our lives. Guide us now. Help us to... Hear what we need to hear, and may your Holy Spirit be here to guide us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So the title of our seminar session is Beyond the Tithe. And why do I call it that? And that's because usually when you go to a church and you hear stewardship seminar, usually it's something along the lines of, you should be more faithful in returning your tithes and offerings to the church. And that's about the extent of it. But we want to go beyond that, right? The tithe is important. The tithe and the offerings are an essential part of of, uh, personal finance principles and things like that. But there's a lot more to it than that. And so while this seminar can rightly be called a stewardship seminar, I try to stay away from that term because of the baggage. People feel like it's a bad word or it's got negative connotations. And so biblical lessons on personal finance, that is actually what we're going to be um, calling the seminar. Now, we are filling up, so let me move my bag. And if someone wants to sit right in the front row, you are welcome to. So uh, A students in the front row. All right, so let's continue. So session one, the title of this first session is called Neither Poverty Nor Riches. I'm going to try to move around so people over here can see. neither poverty nor riches, redefining wealth and prosperity. Okay, so we're dealing with principles, foundational principles here to start off. So a little bit about myself. Why should you listen to me? <laughs> what right do I have? What credibility do I have to talk about money? As you, say, as you are uh, aware... You know, there are certain topics that uh, you should never talk about if you don't want to offend people. You, should talk, you shouldn't talk about people's diet, you shouldn't talk about how they should dress, and you shouldn't talk about how they ought to spend their money. And so um, I'm not going to touch about the first two, but the second one, I'm here to rattle your cage a little bit. So why listen to me? First of all, I'm not a professional. So I'm not here to give you professional financial advice, investment advice, tax advice, legal advice. That's just, you know, boilerplate disclaimer at the beginning that you have to understand. But I believe this is also one of the reasons why perhaps uh, I have something that might be valuable to you to listen to, and that is I don't have anything here to sell you. <laughs> <laughs> Amen? Amen? All right. I've got a free blog. I'll talk about that later. You can read it or not read it. It doesn't bother me at all. But as far as my, um, credentials, I do have a business degree, but perhaps more important than that, I was a math teacher once and, uh, believe it or not, all you need to be, all you need to know to do, you know, really sound personal finance is a little bit of math. You don't have to have an MBA, but you do need to have, know how to add, subtract, multiply, divide, fractions, decimals. You do need to know that. Okay. So, uh, Having been a math teacher, I think that does give me a little bit of credibility, and also I do have a business degree for what it's worth. And that business degree, uh, graduate degree, I got from Southern Adventist University, but eh, who cares about that? I graduated debt-free. That's what matters, right? So I've actually done a few things that I'm talking about, uh, what I'm sharing with you. And uh, I paid off my house. My wife and I paid off our house in two years. We bought our house in 2013 and we paid it off in 2015, exactly the month our daughter was born. Which, there she is. She's actually right in the back. She doesn't look like this anymore. (laughs) But in 2015, the year that we paid off our house and the year we had our baby, we spent 24% of our take home pay. So, 24% of our take home income we spent to live on, okay? We gave away 21%, so tithes and offerings. And charitable giving and we saved 55% okay that's in 2015 so 2016 first full year of being parents and as you have often heard children blow up your budget Uh, so yeah our spending did go up a little bit 25% Uh, we gave away 26% and we saved 49% and you see the majority of the change was right here we chose that year to up our charitable giving and our offerings so and I have a whole seminar. I'm not going to get into that here, but if you, uh, I'll share the link with you later. But I have a whole presentation based on the Bible and Spirit Prophecy principles for why we w- went up to uh, a 26% rate. So all of this to show, these are our numbers. And if you want to really see the details on our blog, uh, we actually lay it all out. We tell you exactly how much we earned, how much we saved, how much we spent, how much we pay for our groceries, how much we pay for our our uh, cell phone service, all that. So in 2015, my wife worked half the year before she took off to be a stay-at-home mom full-time. So in 2016, not only did we maintain, essentially, our percentages and our savings, we lost one income. Okay, So I think that is worthy of note. So one ministry salary, one stay-at-home mom. You, you heard I work for Audioverse. And when we, have, you know, when we use the term ministry salary, that's a code language. It's a euphemism. Within Adventism, we say, oh, I work for a ministry salary. That just means not much, right? But praise the Lord, we have more than, more than we need. So not a complaint, just a statement of fact. And there's no secret windfall. I don't have a rich uncle that is somehow bankrolling us. Uh, we didn't win the lottery. Don't play the lottery, right? Don't do that. Uh, and so, perhaps those are a few reasons why I have something to share. So I mentioned earlier, savingthecrumbs.com. This is our website. You can list or not listen, sorry, but you can go and read a lot of the principles that we're sharing here this weekend. We share there, and here we're sort of flying at thirty thousand feet, whereas here we get down to the, the weeds. We get nuts and bolts dollars and cents and actual services that we use and where we buy them and how we do it. So uh, that's a free resource, no charge. At audioverse.org, uh, we ha- I have my seminar also entitled Beyond the Tithe, six hours, okay, six hours in-depth seminar on the same topic we're talking about today. And what I mentioned earlier about biblical reasons, how much ought we to give in tithes and offerings. We talk about that, okay? And uh, there are a few other things that we're not able to cover here this weekend that is included in that seminar. So just go to audiverse.org. You can look up my name, or you can look up Beyond the Tithe as the name of the seminar. Okay. All of this is just introduction. We're going to start with a quiz, okay? First session. Quiz. Hope you're awake. And really, this is uh, a quiz format uh, to help guide our discussion, okay? So this uh, is going to be the majority of our presentation for this first hour, and these are all true and false questions, 10 quiz questions. Question number one, true or false, we shouldn't talk about money because it is the root of all evil, okay? That should be a give me question because why would I be here if we shouldn't be talking about money, right? I just spent time talking about a six-hour seminar about talking about money, so clearly I believe we need to talk about it. But of course, the, the 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 point here is money as the root of all evil. Is that a true statement or not? Is that what the Bible says? First Timothy six verse ten, you guys are sharp. For what? The love of money is the root of all evil, which while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Is there a difference between the love of money? And money itself. Yes. Because when we say the love of money, where does the problem reside? The person who's in love with the money. Not the money itself. Money is an inanimate object. It's either paper or gold coins or you know dollars in a spreadsheet. It's not capable of doing anything. It's the person behind the money. So if the love of money is the root of all evil, then the issue is with our relationship with money. And if that's the issue, I feel perhaps it is irresponsible not to talk about money because we're talking about an issue of character now, of morality. All right, so let's take a look at a few things, right? When we think about money, what do we think of? Especially here in California, I was driving up, your gas was like $3.30 a gallon. I remember when it was like $5 a gallon, you remember that? Not to rub it in, but in Tennessee, gas was like $1.69 or something. But nevertheless, people complain about gas over there, just like we're complaining about gas here. So money is involved with all of our everyday transactions. When we pump the gas, we swipe the card or whatever. Our smartphones, these things are money-sucking vampires. Right? Every couple years, you gotta spend a couple hundred bucks to drop on another one. You crack the screen, you gotta fix it. The battery goes dead, you gotta fix it. There's not just the physical device, there's the service charge, right? Verizon, it's gonna eat you alive. And then there's the app store. Oh, it's just 99 cents, 99 cents, 99 cents. How did I spend $100 on worthless apps? This thing is like, it's wireless, they say, and yeah, it's wirelessly tethered to your wallet sucking out all your money. (laughs) Smartphones cost money. We don't see it, but it does. Even things like getting sick, it costs money, right? Not just the medication, not just health insurance, I'm not gonna talk about politics here, but loss of job time, right? Pay time off, you might get paid, you might not, and then uh, all of the associated money that is uh, related to healthcare. Relationships, how many people have you heard about with relationship trouble that involves money? I don't remember the statistics right off the bat, but it's something like uh, over half of all divorces, or uh, rather the majority of divorces all have money as one of the reasons. It may not be the cause, but it becomes one of the issues that come into the mix. And so even in our human relationships, money so often get in the way. Or how about your um, eccentric relative who hits you up for money? And then you are being a good Samaritan. You give them money, and then the next thing you know, they're off on a Bahama cruise vacation. What does that do to you inside? What about my $1,000 that I loaned you or my $100? Even if it's 25 bucks. How dare you go sip on your, you know, your virgin coconut water, whatever, sleeping on a hammock when you owe me $25? And what happens is relationships begin to fray over money. Okay? So money is involved with everything. Okay? Education. I don't think I have to say anything about this. right? Education costs a lot of money. All right? When we come to conferences like this, GYC, every chair we sit in, the lights that are on, someone is paying for that. It costs money. And then in the world, you hear about businesses closing all the time. They didn't make enough money. But guess what? That's no different from Adventist institutions. Our schools closing down. Why? Not enough tuition, right? So money, what I'm trying to illustrate here is that money permeates every single corner of our lives. And for us to say we shouldn't talk about money is irresponsible. There are over 2,000 texts about money in the Bible. And to not talk about money is to ignore a huge swath of what God believes we need to talk about. And so I believe the answer is false. We should, in fact, talk about money so let's continue number two true or false to save money is to be faithless in god's ability to provide for us parentheses particularly for adventists we like to say because jesus is coming soon you guys answered that so readily not sure sure. (laughs) that's fine that's fine because uh you know i think it's something worth wrestling over right yeah exactly right there does need to be a balance. We can't be living as though there's no care in the world. We just hard, you know, keep storing up more and more. We always have to remember the end time context. Jesus is indeed coming soon, and it should, impact, in fact, inform us. But let's see what the Bible has to say. Okay? So Matthew six thirty one through 34, familiar passage. Therefore, take no thought, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or wherewithal shall we be clothed? For after all these things do the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knoweth that ye have need of all these things. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Take therefore no thought for the morrow, for the morrow shall take care or take thought for the things of itself. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. So Jesus himself seems to indicate don't worry about the future. Just seek ye first, right, the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and he'll take care of the rest. Is that not what this verse says? implies okay certainly this passage is true i just want you to keep this in mind the word seek ye first what does that mean how do we seek first the kingdom of god what are some things practically that we could do to seek first the kingdom of god it's not a trick question Okay, relationship with God priority, excellent. And he's holding up the Bible in the back. Reading the Bible, Bible. how many of you agree with that? Okay, all right, we've got a couple hands here, yes. Okay, tithes, returning the first fruits, excellent. Was that what you were going to say? Same thing? So you guys are all on the right track. But how do we know that we need to return the tithe? What tells us we need to return the tithe? The Bible, Bible, right? How do we have a relationship with Jesus? Prayer Prayer and Bible study. So let's just boil it down, okay? I'm not trying to oversimplify things, but would it be fair to say that in order for us to rightly seek first the kingdom of heaven, that we need to be in study of the Bible? Would we agree with that? How much of the Bible? All of it. All of it. Not a trick question, okay? So all of, the, all of Scripture. We agreed? Okay, let's take it one step further. When we read something in the Bible that we should do, should we obey it? If we don't obey, would we be following or seeking first the kingdom of heaven anymore? Okay, so let me put it this way. When we say, seek ye first the kingdom of God, it is not a passive sitting back, twiddling our thumbs, dreaming about someday when God takes us to heaven. Seeking first The kingdom of heaven requires an active faith, a faith that works. Some, it involves studying the Bible from end to end, taking all of the counsel that's been given to us, and then applying it through the power of the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. Okay? So what does the Bible have to say about saving money? Okay? So this is what I'm trying to illustrate. Let's take a let's take a look at these verses, and then we'll come back. Okay, we'll come back to seeking first the kingdom of heaven. Proverbs six verses six through eight. Go to the ant, thou sluggard; consider her ways, and be wise. Which, having no guide, overseer, or ruler, provideth her meat in the summer and gathereth her food in the harvest. We're talking about the book of nature now, which is also a means by which God teaches us. We're looking at the ant. What is the lesson the Bible tells us we need to learn from the ant? They make preparation in the summer for the winter. That's called saving. Amen? Amen. Are we in agreement here? Genesis 41, verse 34 to 36. This is a story of Joseph. He's brought before Pharaoh. Pharaoh has his dreams. Seven plenteous years. Seven lean years. What does Joseph recommend under the guidance of the Holy Spirit? What should the nation of Egypt do? Let Pharaoh do this, and let him appoint officers over the land, and take up the fifth part of the land of Egypt in the seven plenteous years. And in the end, it says here, which shall be in the land of Egypt, that the land perish not through the famine. So, what is the counsel that God, through Joseph, gives to the Pharaoh in Egypt? What should they do? Save. Here's another one. Proverbs 21. This is the same verse in two different versions of the Bible. The NIV, Proverbs 21, verse 20 says, The wise store up choice food and olive oil, and fools gulp theirs down. The wise happen to be the ones that we want to be, right? The Bible recommends us to be wise. They save up for the future. The King James emphasizes. Uh, the second half of the verse, there is treasure to be desired and oil in the dwelling of the wise, but a foolish man spends it up. So I think it's clear when we take the balance of scripture is that there is a balance in trusting in God to provide for us. Matthew six thirty-three: seek ye first. It is still a valid statement. I'm not trying to undermine it. What I am simply saying is that the way that we seek first the kingdom of heaven and his righteousness is to utilize the thing he gave us between our ears called our brain to read scripture to see what practical guidance it gives us and then apply it in our lives through the power of the holy spirit and through that means god provides and the promise is even if what we do is not enough God's there to take care of the rest. Amen? Because a foolish man is the one who says, Oh, God will take care of me. So I got a paycheck today. Let's go spend it all at the outlet mall. You see the difference. The difference is the mindset of saying God will provide as license to be presumptuous versus God will provide as a basis of, well, he gave me the ability to provide, and even if I don't make up, uh, even if I don't have enough, God is standing there to make up for my lack. You see the difference in perspective. And so some statistics here that I think open our eyes a little bit. This is from Forbes magazine. Uh, just recently, the statistics show that 63% of Americans don't have enough savings to cover a $500 emergency. Can you say a fool spends it all up, okay? 63% over half of the nation, if they were hit with a $500 bill, would have to charge their credit card, go borrow money, go further into debt. And I'm just telling you, like just even with our within our home, in like the last two months, we had like a $2,000 emergency. Things break, air conditioning breaks, lawnmower breaks, flood, you know, Pipes, line, uh, pipes in the lawn break and water leaks everywhere. If only emergencies were so polite to come in $500 increments. <laughs> the reality is really $500 shouldn't be an emergency. Okay? 56.3% from the same article tells us 56.3% have less than $1,000 in their checking and savings accounts combined. So this is going to show, this shows us that within America today, we are indeed the presumptuous fool who spends it all up without provision for the future. We ought to be going to the ant and learning from them. And here's a really convicting quote. First Timothy 5 verse 8, Paul writes, But if any provide not for his own, and especially for those of his own house, He has denied the faith and is worse than an infidel. So the Apostle Paul lays it down thick, right? He says, and I believe he's specifically speaking to the breadwinner. Usually that's the man in the house. And Paul is saying, you better provide for your family. In fact, there's another place in Thessalonians. He says, if a man does not work, neither should he eat. Paul is very clear, and he says, I have given you an example. I built tents with my own hands so that I can leave you an example that I didn't have to depend on your charity, even though he had every right to. This is a powerful statement that we ought to keep in mind. Let's not uh, be presumptuous. Okay, so last day events, page 76, paragraph 4, Ellen White writes this. Christ declared that when he comes, some of his waiting people will be engaged in business transactions. Some will be sowing in the field, others reaping and gathering into the harvest, and others grinding at the mill. It is not God's will that his elect shall abandon life's duties and responsibilities and give themselves up to idle contemplation, living in a religious dream. The point here is Ellen White says, or Jesus says, excuse me, occupy till I come. And Ellen White here is applying it by saying, don't be so heavenly minded that you are of no earthly good. Okay, you want to be practical. you want to be useful and providing for the needs of your family, and, in turn, providing for the needs of the church. OK, we're question number three now. True or false. God wants us to live a comfortable life. <laughs> All right, so it looks like we've got to create a little stir here. Okay, so the, I guess the, the concern here is what does the word comfortable mean? Yeah. Ah, you guys are on to something. So it's a maybe, right? Depends. It's a it depends answer. God wants us to live a comfortable life. Okay, let's see what servants of, the servant of the Lord has to say. Counsel's on stewardship, page 250, paragraph 2. Had you and your wife understood it to be a duty... Oh, that's a strong word. A duty that God enjoined upon you to deny your taste and your desires and make provision for the future. Okay, let's just pause right there. That's exactly what we were just talking about. White here says it is a duty for you to make provision for the future. So White here very clearly says it's a duty to save. Okay? But continuing, instead of living merely for the present, you could now have had a competency and your family have had the comforts of life. So just as a, at a, a surface level, the word comfort, comfortable, is a word that's used by Ellen White to describe God's uh, preference for us. So, yes, in a sense, that's a true statement. The question God wants us to live a comfortable life, this statement shows, yes. But, of course, we need to move on. What's the balance here? this Home, page 379, paragraph 3 says, God does not require that his people should deprive themselves of that which is really necessary for their health and comfort. Can somebody say amen? amen. It's okay to have air conditioning in your house. Amen. amen. It's okay to have a washing machine. Amen. You do not have to live in a cardboard box. Amen. And you know, sometimes we get this idea that Ellen White is a sour face. Dour, cloudy woman that's always out with a little stick to wrap you on the hand saying, don't buy that, don't eat that, don't live there. If you've ever been to her house in Elmshaven, you will understand that she lived this. She lived in a nice place and she provided for the household that was under her care. But here's the balancing statement. But he does not approve of wantonness and extravagance and display. Now, that still leaves some room for interpretation, and I think that's how God intends it, okay? You work that out with him, okay? The reality is there are certain people who can drive a BMW, okay, based on the way that uh, God has blessed them and the type of line of work that they're in and whatnot, whereas there are other people, they probably shouldn't even be driving a new Toyota Camry, (laughs) right? So I believe that is something that you need to work out with the Lord to define what's appropriate in your situation but the balance is there. God wants us to live a comfortable, healthful, convenient life but just shun the extravagance and luxurious display. Leo Rostin, he makes this funny statement, money can't buy happiness, but neither can poverty. <laughs> and you know, sometimes we get this idea and we'll get there in a minute. Sometimes we get this idea that to be poor is to be holy. That's not necessarily the case, right? The Bible does say it is more difficult for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven than a camel to enter the eye of a needle. Yes, riches can be an impediment. Don't, we don't deny that. But yet, I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit. But yet, to be in a state of constant deprivation and need, it stirs within us, perhaps not the level of greed, but covetousness. Tempted to steal. Tempted to be, feel discontent because how come they have that and I don't, right? So, yeah, money can't buy happiness, but neither can poverty. True statement. Okay, number four. Here's a good one. True or false, being in debt is a sin. You know, every time I ask this question, this is the one that gets the crowd divided. Is it a sin to be in debt? Hmm. Hmm. All right. Some say it depends on what kind of debt, depends on the situation, depends on how much. Let's take a look at what inspiration has to say. Okay. The book Publishing Ministry, page 209, paragraph 4 and 5. Ellen White herself speaking. Now I write to ask if you will let me have the use of $2,000 to help me in bringing out books that the people need. If I should fall in the conflict before the Lord's appearing, my sons would carry for the work of circulating my books according to my plans. When the expense of my issuing of my books is less and the sales will soon pay up all my debts. So Ellen White herself asked to borrow money. So. <laughs> sounds like we have a, someone that's surprised by that. And uh, so having, having read this statement, and there are others, Okay. It's difficult for me to say that being in debt is a sin, but the Bible does have something else to say about the matter. Proverbs 22, verse 7 says, the borrower is servant to the lender. And the word servant can also be translated slave. And this is is just a statement of fact. Is that a question there? Okay, previous slide. Okay, I guess we have a few questions or or a few cameras that want to take the picture. So a borrower is slave to the lender. And Jesus himself says, no man can serve two masters. You can either serve the one, love the other. No man can serve God and mammon. Are we ready to move on? Okay. And Ellen White also says this in Adventist Homepage 393, paragraph 4. Be determined never to incur another debt. Deny yourself a thousand things rather than run in debt. This has been the curse of your life, getting into debt. Avoid it as you would the smallpox. So here's the question. Is it a sin to be a slave? No. Not necessarily, but is it a desirable position to be in? No. no. Is it a sin to have to be sick with smallpox? No. But do you want to have it? No. So here's the point. Being in debt may not necessarily be clearly demarcated as sin, but you still don't want to have it. Amen? It's a position of slavery and of having smallpox. So you are a slave with smallpox. Neither of those things make you a sinner necessarily, but yes, it's not something you want, right? So come back the next hour, we're gonna talk much more specifically about debt. Okay, number five. That was just to whet your appetite a little bit. Okay, number five, hopefully this is a gimme question. A budget is a cornerstone of sound personal finance. True or false? True, okay, and next hour, we're gonna actually take take apart a budget and actually see how to build one for yourself. So Councils on Stewardship, page 294, paragraph one. In the study of figures, let the work Sorry, the work should be made practical. Let every youth and every child be taught not merely to solve imaginary problems, but to keep an accurate account of his income and outgoes. Let him learn the right use of money by using it. So homeschooling parents, if you're doing that right now, this is something very worthwhile to do. Here's another one. Adventist Home, page 374, paragraph 4. All should learn how to keep accounts. Some neglect this work as nonessential, but this is wrong. All expense should be accurately stated. So, yes, budget is indeed important. We'll talk more about that in the next session. Okay, question number six. True or false? Giving a 10% tithe is the extent of my financial obligation to God. All right, I'm at GYC Southwest. We're on the mountain. You guys are the ones that didn't leave after Sabbath. This is like the remnant, right? So you guys knew the answer to this one. So let's drive this point clear. We need to make sure, because this is one of the most foundational principles about First of all, finance. Psalm 24, verse 1. The earth is whose? The Lord's. Lord's. And how much of its fullness? All its fullness. The world and those who dwell therein. So how much in this world belongs to God? All of it. Okay. Psalm 50, verse 2. If I were hungry, I would not tell you. For the world is mine mine and all its fullness. So how much does God own? So the 10% that we return to God... 10%, is that all that belongs to him? What about the other 90%? You sure? You no, know, David was a man who, was, who loved the Lord, and he wanted to build the temple. You remember the story. But God, through his prophet Nathan, said, no, you've shed too much blood. Your son can build the temple. You are not allowed to. And David said, can I at least draw up the plans? Can I at least go out and purchase all the materials? I'll just lay it all out. I'll, it'll be like a Lego set. I'll even print out the instructions for my boy. And at the dedication of the stuff, okay? This is David dedicating all of the materials that he has gathered for the temple. We call it Solomon's temple, but it's really David's temple. This is what he said. Now, therefore, our God, we thank thee and praise thy glorious name. But who am I and what is my people that we should be able to offer so willingly after the sort For all things come of thee, and of thine own have we given thee. David had the right perspective, right? Uh, For all of you parents, my daughter is too young to have done this yet, but if you were a child at one point, you remember, like, Mom and Dad, I want to, you know, get you a gift. But who paid for the gift, right? Mom and Dad paid for the gift. Mom and Dad gave money to little Johnny or whatever to go buy a gift to give back to Mom and Dad. This is exactly what's going on. David is like, of thine own, we have given back. Continuing, for we are strangers before thee and sojourners as were all our fathers. Our days on the earth are as a shadow and there is none abiding, O Lord our God. All this store that we have prepared to build thee in house for Thine holy name cometh of thine hand and is all thine own. God is the owner of everything. And so when we think about the tithes and the offerings, we're not giving our money. We're just returning it to him. And it's just a reminder for us who owns it in the first place. Christ's Object Lessons, page 351, paragraph 2. Some think that only a portion of their means is the Lord's. When they have set apart a portion for religious and charitable purposes, they regard the remainder as their own to be used as they see fit. But in this, they mistake. All we possess is the Lord's, and we are accountable to him for the use we make of it. And so, now we come to the famous statement. Malachi 3, verse 8. For will a man rob God? Yet ye have robbed me. But ye say, wherein have we robbed thee in tithes and offerings? So is 10% tithe the the extent? If we are only returning the 10% tithe, we are still robbing God. Because tithes and offerings together. And I will also mention this. If we're just giving tithes and offerings, no matter what percentage we demarcate and we're keeping the remaining percentage and saying, this is mine, God, you have no right to it, we're still robbing God because it doesn't belong to us anyway. And so I mentioned this earlier. I'm going to make this point now. I don't have time in this weekend to go over the whole Bible study of the Bible and Spirit Prophecy about the percentages of tithes and offerings and what the recommendation is. But on the seminar, six-part series, uh, on part six from GYC 2015, I spent a whole hour dealing with that question. How much, right? How do we give? How much should our tithes and offerings be? And you'll be surprised how specific God actually is on that point. So let's just summarize this point. This is important. God owns everything. We are simply managers of what he has placed within our care. That's the term stewardship. We are accountable to God for how we handle his money, whether by spending, saving, or giving. And this is an important point. The tithe is simply the dividends, You understand in a business environment, a shareholder is the owner of the business. They might not work there. They might not be a manager. They might not even be a customer. But because they own the business, they receive a percentage of the profits returned to them called dividends. And that is simply representing his ownership of the other 90%. Okay, so when we think about the tithe, it's simply our return – of the goods that we have grown, the increase of the resources he's given to our care, and the 10% dividend we're t- returning to God is just the indication that he owns the rest. That's, that's all it means. We don't own anything. It all belongs to him. And it's just a reminder of who's the boss. Okay? So the tithe is not for God. Yes, I understand the church needs it to pay for the pastors and, yeah, all that. But the tithe is for us. To remember we're not the boss. God owns it. Okay, so I wanted to make sure we drill that point home. Point number seven, okay? Investing, this is a true or false question again. Investing is gambling. It's not biblical and is contrary to sound Christian principles. False? True? Okay, so we got got, uh, divided answers here. That's good. Let's see what Jesus has to say about this. Matthew chapter 25, verse 27, it says, You ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. Now, this is the passage from the talents, the parable of the talents. A man got five talents, two talents, one talent. And at the end of the day, long time later, the master comes back to take account with his servants. And uh, the one who brought five more, well done, the good and faithful servant. Right? The one who had two brought two more. The one who buried the talent in the ground, God said, you wicked and slothful servant. Now, we, we read that parable, and we apply it to all sorts of things. And In fact, if you read the book, Christ's Object Lessons, it says all, all the gifts that God has given to us is typified by those talents. Whatever it is that he gives to us, we have an obligation to improve and to gain more for the master's use. you know, you've read it. You know, it's like our time, our speech, our health, our abilities, our spiritual gifts. But one of the things that is included is money. And it's fascinating how we frequently jump over the literal application, the actual substance that Jesus is using to illustrate this point, and talk about everything else except the money. And we seem to think it's okay to waste the money or, oh, not save and not invest when Jesus himself says, the money I gave you, you should make good use of it so there's more to go back into the treasury, okay? And now, we're not going to talk about investing uh, specifically this weekend, but again, GYC, I have a whole hour talking about principles on investing. And also, you can can read my blog for more information, but the point simply here is to say – Investing, in fact, is something biblical. Okay, here's another one. Question number eight, true or false? God wants us to prosper and to build wealth. True? Are you sure? (laughs) So over here, some say God wants us to prosper to give. All right. All right, so there's a good question. There's a clarification. What do you mean by wealth? Yeah. What does it mean to prosper, right? It's a little bit of a tricky question. I'll give you that. But let's see what the Bible has to say. We alluded to this earlier, Matthew 19:24. And again, I say unto you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. You remember the rich young ruler? He was a wealthy man. But Jesus told him to sell all that he had. Hmm. Nicodemus was a wealthy man. He gave it all to the church. Joseph of Arimathea. There are many instances like that. James 5, 1 through 3. This one is really bombastic. Go to now, you rich man, Weep and howl for your miseries that shall come upon you. Your riches are corrupted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver is cankered, and the rust of them shall be a witness against you and shall eat your flesh as it were fire. Ye have heaped treasure together for the last days. Strong words of denunciation upon the rich. In fact, Jesus elsewhere says, lay not up your treasures here upon the earth where moth and rust does corrupt and thieves break through a steal, but lay up your treasures in heaven, right? So um, looking at these verses, uh, wealth is bad, right? Uh, we right? We just read the verses. We just read the verses. Being rich is an evil thing. <laughs> I'm not I'm, I'm, uh, trying to probe you. I want you to think. Because you remember earlier, we talked about seeking first the kingdom of heaven, right? Yes. Studying the Bible. How much of the Bible do we need to read? All, All of it. Are there other statements in scripture about wealth? Yes. Okay, let's take a look. Deuteronomy 8, verse 18. But thou shalt remember the Lord thy God, for it is he that giveth thee power to get wealth. Amen. But doesn't it sound like the Bible's talking out of both sides of its mouth? On one hand, it's like, it is really hard for a rich man to go into the kingdom of heaven. But who gave the rich man the ability to get the wealth in the first place? Huh. We're feeling a little bit of a tension. I want you to feel that tension because it's real. And we need, to, we need to wrestle with it. We need to come to grips with it. Deuteronomy 28, verse 11 and 12. And the Lord shall make thee plenteous in goods. That sounds like prosperity to me. In the fruit of thy body, and in the fruit of thy cattle, and in the fruit of thy ground, in the land which the Lord swear unto thy fathers to give thee. This is the promise to Israel if they were faithful. The Lord shall open unto thee his good treasure, the heaven to give the rain unto thy land in his season, and to bless all the work of thine hand. And thou shalt lend unto many nations, and shall not borrow. This sounds like God's ideal for the children of Israel was not just spiritual prosperity, but physical, material prosperity. And I'm going to make this a little side note here. You notice this? You shall lend unto many nations and shall not borrow. What's another word for that that we just mentioned earlier? It's called investing. So God's ideal for Israel was you will have a surplus of means to invest, just like Jesus recommended us to invest. All right, so that was a side note. But the point here that we're trying to make is that God does plan for his people to prosper. Proverbs 3, verse 9 and 10. Honor the Lord with thy substance and with the first fruits of all thine increase. So shall thy barns be filled with plenty and thy presses shall burst out with new wine. You know, this is really interesting because Proverbs says that our barns will be filled with plenty. But then you remember the story of the rich fool. He had a big barn. He filled it up. He said, let's build a bigger barn. Fill that up. And then God says, you fool. Know you not that tonight... Your soul be required of thee. Because he just wanted to have an early retirement and kick back and drink his, you know, pina colada, whatever. And so on one hand, God says your barns will be filled with plenty. But on the other hand, a man who did have his barns filled with plenty was condemned by God. So the Bible is is trying to give us two sides that we have to wrestle with in order to find out where the middle ground really is. 3 John 2. Beloved. I wish above all things that thou mayest prosper and be in health even as thy soul prospereth. And so John here is making it very clear. It's like the prosperity here must mean a physical prosperity because the prosperity of health is a second point and the prosperity of the soul is another point. So it's not like I want you to be spiritually, you know, faithful and in the Lord. Yeah, you already are. I want you, materially speaking, to also be in a good position just like your soul is. Councils on Stewardship, page 113, paragraph 1. The followers of Christ are not to despise wealth. They are to look upon wealth as the Lord's entrusted talent. Just like the parable that we read earlier. By a wise use of his gifts, they may be eternally benefited, but we are to bear the fact in mind that God has not given us riches to use just as we shall fancy to indulge impulses to bestow or withhold as we shall please. And so this is the balancing point here, as our brother over here has been mentioning. The wealth is not for us. The wealth is for God's use, not merely to feed our own impulses. So the paradox of wealth in the Bible is simply this. If I can boil it down, the Bible condemns excessive riches. And the reason for that is because excessive riches leads us to trust in mammon and not in God. It causes us to forget the Lord. We are our own gods now. We lose the faith in him. But yet, the paradox is that the Bible also encourages prosperity, So how do we harmonize these two points? We've begun that process, but I don't want to spoil the punchline of this whole seminar. So you're going to have to hold on that. And it all comes down to this word, prosperity. What does the Bible mean? Okay? So we're going to come back to this at the end of our hour together. I want to keep this thought in your mind. the Paradox of wealth. All right, let's get practical now. Okay? Since we just talked about prospering, Let's talk about some nuts and bolts, how that can be done. Question number nine, true or false? It is better to save small amounts regularly while young than to save a lot later when we earn more. Okay, let me rephrase this question a little bit because it might be a mouthful. Is it better to save as a young person little bits at a time, or is it better to simply wait until we're a little older when we have a bigger paycheck and to put away larger sums? Okay, so who says we should save while we're young? Okay, who says it's better to wait till we're older? Okay, so both, yes, I know, that's a cop-out answer. (laughs) But uh, let's take a look at an example to illustrate this. We're going to look at Thrifty Tiffany and Spendy Sally. They are the same age. And uh, they are friends. They graduated from school at the same time. At the age 20, I'm just using round numbers. And Tiffany over here, she saves $2,000 a year from age 20 to the age 30 for 10 years. And she invested at an 8% rate of return. And I know everyone's going to ask this question, where do I get 8%? 8%, let me just mention that now. 8% rate of return is the historical return of the S&P 500 index. And so if you bought an S&P 500 index fund, which is available in pretty much every single retirement plan, 401k with your work, whatever, you would have gotten at least 8%. So that's why I use that number. It's a market index. I'm just using a standard that is you know, uh, widely available, something that people are familiar with. So that's where the 8% comes from. And you backdate it over 100 years, 8% or more okay, from the S&P 500 index. So that's where the 8% comes from. All right. So $2,000 a year, 10 years, 8% rate of return. So over 10 years, she invested $20,000 of her own money. And then she quit. When she turned 30, she quit not another dime of investments. Sally, on the other hand, remember, they're the same age. She says, I'm young. Let me just live life a little bit. I'm going to travel. I'm going to have fun with my friends. And, you know, I'm going to try to, you know, move up in my career ladder so I can earn more later. And so the same year that Tiffany stopped saving at 30 years old, Sally begins saving. Okay? So she starts 10 years later. $2,000 a year from age 30 to age 65. Okay? Retirement age. And she gets the same rate of return, 8%. So she invested $70,000 over 35 years. So she puts in more money over a longer period of time. So when they hit 65 and they decide, okay, I'm ready to retire, who's got more money? Sally? Who says Tiffany? See, some say Tiffany. Who says Sally? Okay, Sally. All right. Let's see what the numbers say. Who has more at 65? Tiffany will have half a million dollars, while Sally will only have $380,000. That's $120,000 difference. But not only that, it's $120,000 while she put in $50,000 more of her own money. All right? So, why is this possible? How does this work? It's all because of the secret called compound interest. Okay, compound interest, if you remember into your high school algebra, remember you you have to know a little bit of math, right, to do personal finance. Compound interest is the opposite, or not the opposite, but it's in contrast to simple interest. Simple interest, you just earn the same amount of interest every year or every compounding period or whatever. Compound interest is you earn interest on the interest that you gain. So it becomes an exponential growth. It's a curve instead of a straight line. So here's, the, ex- here's uh, the actual graph of Tiffany and Sally. So Tiffany is the blue. Sally is the red. And you notice the hockey stick shape here. It's because eventually, even though she only put in $20,000, eventually the interest on the $20,000 earns more than the $20,000 she put in herself. So her money now is working for her without any more effort of her own. And and because Sally started 10 years later, she could never give up, uh, catch up. Because compound interest was sweeping Tiffany along so much further that Sally would have to go a lot further before she can catch up to Tiffany. So the point I'm trying to say is simply this. You don't have to get 8% rate of return. I was just using that as an example. But the point is, the sooner you start, the more time works on your behalf. Compound interest is a wonderful thing. Uh, When it's working for you? I'll just just add this point right now. And that is, um, you know credit cards? They operate on compound interest as well, (laughs) except they're working against you. And so you want it working for you, not allow the credit card company to take advantage of you using it. And so this is what I'm trying to say. The best time to plant a tree was 20 years ago. The second best time is now. You're never going to be younger than you are today. And so yes, it might be a, a point that you wish you would have done you know, long ago, but hey, it's better today than waiting another 20 years. Okay? So the point, the question that we were asking, is it better to save a little bit when you're young or save more when you're old? The answer is the sooner the better. Even if it's just a small amount, even if it's $50 a month or $10 a month, get into the habit of saving, just like the ant. Go to the ant, thou sluggard, right? Okay, question number 10. This is the last quiz question, and then we're going to get into the wrap-up of dealing with prosperity and what the Bible means when it says prosper. So question number 10, true or false, the best way to reach financial independence is to earn more money? False. It depends. This, I have to say, is a little bit of a trick question. Okay, So what is the best way anyway, right? What is it in contrast to? So there are a couple things. What do we mean when we say financial independence? Different people define it different ways. Some people say financial independence is getting out of debt. Once I'm out of debt, I feel financially independent. Some people say when I pay off my house. Some people say when I've actually bought a house. Some people, financial independence is when my investments throw off enough passive income that I don't have to work anymore. That's also called retirement, right? When people retire, that's the idea. Social security, their 401k, their pension plan, whatever, you know, financial independence. Whatever your definition is, you know, uh, financial independence. So what's the contrast to earning more money? The opposite is to spend less and to save more. Right? Is it better to earn more or is it better to save more? The obvious answer is to do both. But let's suppose that's not possible. If you could not earn more and save more, you had those two options, to save more or to earn more, which one is better? Well, you know that I write a blog on Saving the Crumb, so that's probably a hint of where I land on this discussion. But let's look at Saver Sam and Consumer Carl. Okay, let's use this as an example. Saver Sam over here, he makes a little under the U.S. Uh, median household income. Right now, I think he's at $55,000 a year. It's an average uh, household income in the United States. He makes $50,000. He spends $20,000 a year. Okay, That's his living expense. And so every year, he's able to save $30,000 of his $50,000. So he has a 60% savings rate. Impressive. Okay, let's look at Consumer Carl. Okay, he earns $150,000, three times more what Sam makes. He spends $120,000 of it a year, and he saved the same amount, $30,000 a year, and that's 20%. And I'll have to say, that's not too bad, right? He's saving 20% of his income. So we might call him Consumer Carl, but he's not doing horribly. But who has greater financial freedom? Okay. Let's think about this. Who here is going to qualify for a bigger mortgage for a bigger house? Carl, clearly. Look at his income. He's going to be able to get a much larger mortgage approved. Okay. Who's going to be able to afford driving a more expensive car? Carl, of course. And he probably is driving an expensive car. He's spending $120,000 a year. That money's got to be going somewhere, right? Who's going to be the one that can afford the luxury vacations? Carl. So who's the one with all the trappings of the better life? Carl. So doesn't that mean Carl has more financial freedom? Are you sure? That's what my television tells me. If I want to be happy, I need to buy this and that and Wear this and apply that ointment or whatever. Take this vacation. Are you sure? What I'm trying to illustrate is there is a definition of financial independence that the world tries to foist upon us, but when we actually think it through, it's not financial freedom at all. Because if if Carl can afford a gigantic mortgage, guess what? The borrower is slave to the lender. That doesn't sound like financial freedom to me. So let me illustrate it this way. Let's say Sam and Carl are converted Seventh-day Adventists. They come to GYC and they say, I want to be a missionary. I want to spend some time working for the Lord. We say, praise the Lord. Wonderful. And they want to spend a significant amount of time working for God. We say, wonderful. Who is able to take more time to go work for God let me make it clear to you (laughs) for each year Sam works he can take over one year off but Carl has to work four years before he can take one year off did you see that because the number, we're not, we are not we don't care about the 30,000 necessarily. 30,000, yeah, it's a lot of money. We have to remember that. But it's the percentage of what he needs to spend to live. Okay? So what's going on here is Sam has restrained his lifestyle. He's been frugal with his living. He's been efficient enough so that he can live on 20,000. So 30,000 will pay for 18 months of his living expenses. But for Carl, he's going to have to work four years before he can take 12 months off. Who, again, now, who has greater financial independence? Sam, obviously. So what am I trying to say? What I'm trying to say is it all depends on what your definition of financial independence is. If we're looking at how can we be of greater use and service to God, I want to be more like Sam. Not like Carl, but here's the ideal, right? The ideal is if Carl has this income, but that level of spending, right? Then he can do a huge amount of good in the kingdom of heaven. So here's the point. There is a double benefit of living on less. You are able to save a greater percentage of your income immediately. Okay, so Sam was able to save 60% of his income immediately. And also, the total amount of savings required is permanently decreased in the future. So for Sam, he'll never need to be a multi-multi-millionaire in order to be fully financially free. $20,000 a year, you know, he could get by with a fairly small nest egg. But if you've got a lifestyle that has inflated to be hundreds of thousands of dollars a year, you're going to need a huge investment to be able to throw off any amount of cash close to covering your living expenses. And so there's a double benefit on living on less. So if I had to choose, better to live on less than just to, just to earn more. But if you do earn more, hey, more power to you. Spend less, have more to apply to the work of God. So that brings us to the end of our quiz, but we're not done with this session. Because remember, we put a little point on the back burner. We need to come back to it. Okay, We're, we're building up to the punchline. And that is redefining wealth and prosperity. That's the point of this seminar. What is the purpose of money? Okay, we need to get to the root of this. So we talked about money is involved, you know, money covers everything, and we have to have money for every little thing in life. But what is it? What's the actual purpose? To summarize, money is a tool with only three functions. We can boil it down. Money is good only for three things. Okay? Number one, to spend on current needs or wants. So you can spend your money on what you want or what you need right now. Money is good to save for future needs or wants, and money is to give, to give away. Any application of money can fall within one of these three categories. Okay, you want to go on a vacation right now? You're spending it on a current need or want. You want to go on a vacation next year? Well, you're saving it for future need or want. You feel moved to give to a mission project or a student missionary or AFM that we've heard about here, giving it away, right? Everything that we talk about revolves around one of these three things. And investing uh, for a retirement or something like that would fall under savings. And this is co- confirmed to us in the spirit of prophecy. Christ's Object Lessons, page 351, paragraph 3. Money has great value because it can do great good. But money is of no more value than sand, only as it is put to use in providing for the necessities of life, number one, in blessing others and advancing the cause of Christ. So the three things, to spend on current needs or wants, providing for the necessities of life right now. To save for future needs or wants is providing for future necessities of life. And to give away is to bless others and advance the cause of Christ, to give it away. Okay, back one slide. All right. So the three, tool with three uses. And so money is good only for these three things. And even the spirit of prophecy confirms that. Are we good? All right, let's keep going. So then, what does it mean to be prosperous? What does it mean to be wealthy? What does it mean to be rich? Because we talked about earlier how Jesus, or rather the Bible, recommends prosperity. But yet, it condemns the rich man, you know, camel eye through the eye of a needle and all of those things. So what does it mean when the Bible say to prosper? Does it mean taking exotic vacations to tropical islands? These are the pictures, right, we get of living the wealthy life, driving a fast, expensive car, having a giant mansion, flying on a private jet. You know, it's interesting because uh, I have spoken with some friends, and there's, there's something fascinating about this concept of wealth and riches. And that is, it's a term that we never apply to ourselves. It always applies to someone else. There was a guy who was talk, I was talking to. Him, he said, oh, no, I'm not rich at all. You should see the guys that I play golf with. And I'm like, well, you actually have a golf club membership. That says something about your level of social status. So, but yet, in his mind, he doesn't have the bigger toys, the more expensive house, and, you know, more lavish uh, lifestyle. And so, I'm not rich. And really, unless you're uh, Bill Gates, and I think he might not even be the richest man in the world anymore, right? It's like Jeff Bezos now or something. But whoever it is, there's always going to be someone richer than you. And so... The term wealth and prosperity and riches, it seems to be a nasty, subjective term. It's like it always applies to something else, somewhere else, but never to me. And, you know, it's probably true. You know, compared to some people, uh, we may not be in that class. But then compared to certain parts of the world, we're extremely wealthy. So we need to see how does the Bible define this? Because when we say the Bible, Jesus says, you know, or the Bible in Deuteronomy you read, it is God who gives you the power to be, be, get wealth. And, you know, God wants us to prosper in all these things. If we apply the wrong definition of prosperity and wealth to that equation, we can end up being a greedy, you know, fat cat, whatever you want to call it. Because we need to have a biblical point of departure, of definition here. And so w- this next verse, okay, Is the most important verse I'm going to share this whole seminar. This session and next session, tomorrow, yesterday, everything. This next one is the most important one. This is the foundational principle, okay, of all Christian personal finance, and I want you to remember it. I want you to drill this home in your mind. Proverbs chapter 30, verses 8 and 9. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say who is the Lord, or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. The Bible defines prosperity for us. What is the goal for the Christian as we're trying to manage our money? Give me neither poverty nor riches. I don't want to be super filthy rich, but I don't want to be in poverty either. Just like, you know, the, the, the Leo Rostin we read earlier, money can't buy happiness, but neither can poverty. That actually is echoing what the Bible actually says. And it goes on to explain a little bit because lest I be full and deny you, saying, who is the Lord? That's the problem of the rich man. That's why it's so difficult for the rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. It's because it's easy to say, who is this God that I should worship? I've constructed a life Right? Is this not great Babylon that I have built? That mentality comes self-sufficiency. But, uh-uh-uh, on the other side, if I'm impoverished, I will be tempted to steal and profane the name of my God. To be covetous, to always be discontent, to always have bitterness, to always not esteem others better than myself. Both are sins, And so the balance is right in the middle. Neither poverty nor riches, but what should we strive for? Feed me with the food that is needful for me. So let's summarize. What does it mean to be prosperous? What does it mean to be wealthy? What does it mean to be rich? To have our needs met. To have enough. That's one of the toughest words in the American language. I don't want to say English language, because it seems to be, you know, we're in America, and we, we read earlier, 53% or whatever, 63%, don't even have $500, can't even cover a $500 emergency. We don't have enough, but yet we always want more and more and more and more. And so a, an important corollary to this, all right, is that if this is true, that prosperity is having our needs met? Then there's a very, very simple prospe- or a very, very simple formula to become prosperous. To need less. The less I need, the easier it is for me to prosper. This goes right back to Saver Sam, right? Saver Sam and Consumer Carl. Sam needed less, and because he needed less. In a real sense, he was far more prosperous than Carl was. Even though Carl had a a bigger income, perhaps a bigger net worth, who knows? It's a simple formula to get rich, if I can put it that way. Wealth consists not in having great possessions, but in having few wants. This is not the Bible, but this is what the Bible says. 1 Timothy 6, verse 6 but godliness with contentment is great gain. Amen. So in conclusion, we need to, we're going to move into a little bit of the practical stuff. And then the next session, we're going to get real practical. So how do I know how much I need? Right? Because that's still subjective. And the reality of the matter is, if you're a single person living in the dorm, your needs will be a lot less than a family of five. With kids going to Avenue schools, colleges, you know, depending on the part of the country you live in, right? So that's a fact. You're going to have to, you know, this is going to be a personalized thing. But here are a few ways to know, to figure out that amount, okay? Because in order for us to really get practical in having a budget and figuring out how to manage our money in a practical, hands-on way, we've got to have a dollar amount, a dollar amount for how much we actually need. Because it's easy for us to uh, conjure up things that we, we think we need. <laughs> Wants that are not really needs, but we convince ourselves that they're needs. We're good at doing that. So how do we know what we actually need? Okay, so this is where we're going to have to do a little homework. First, you need to track your monthly living expenses. That's where you got to start. you got to start with where you're at. So take a look at the previous month. Take all of your receipts. I think I say that. Look over all your receipts, your bank credit card statements, and create a report of all your spending. So if you haven't been in the habit of keeping track, you go to your Starbucks, of course, your, you know, uh, soy latte, no caffeine, right? Um, or your, you know, uh, iPhone app store, whatever. You just don't keep track of what you're spending. Well, start keeping track. Keep track for a month. And if there are recurring things, insurance payments, utility bills, or whatever that comes up once in a while. Collect all of that and aggregate how much you're spending on a monthly basis. You want to create a categorized uh, spending list. So categorize your spending, and this is the starting point for the budget. What you want to see is, what am I actually spending to live right now? And you don't have to, you know, don't, don't try to manipulate the numbers, right? Be honest with yourself and just list it all out. How much did I spend on groceries? How much do I spend on gas? How much do I spend going out to eat? How much do I spend on Netflix or Hulu or Amazon Prime or whatever it is, right? And you must account for every penny because this is only as good as the data you put in, right? Garbage in, garbage out, as they say in uh, computer lingo. So this sounds like a lot of work, and at first it might be. But the point of the matter is until you know what where the leaks are, right? Unless you actually know where your money is going, you can't really do anything about it. It's like feeling, oh, I don't feel so well. Well, what's the problem, right? You gotta actually diagnose the problem. So to eliminate all excuses, here are some helpful free tools, online tools that you can use to help uh, go through this process. These are two services that I have used. There are others. Some of them are paid services. But mint.com, this is a website that is free for use. They're ad-supported, so beware of clicking uh, anywhere. It is uh, operated by the company called Intuit, the same people that write TurboTax, QuickBooks, QuickIn. They are one of the giants in the financial uh, software industry. And personalcapital.com, they do uh, similar work, except they're more focused on the investment piece of things. Uh, Mint is more for your um, just... Account aggregation. So both of these services, what they do is you log in and you connect them with your financial companies, your banks, credit cards, mortgage companies, student loans, car loans, all of that. And it pulls all of the information together for you into nice, neat reports, give you nice, colorful graphs, shiny, you know, uh, it's got a free mobile app. And so in essence, what it does is it collects all the data for you. You don't have to manually type it all in. The only thing you'll have to put in are things like you know, cash that you spend and maybe you know, confirm what checks you're writing. But even those will import in from your financial accounts. And so what I'm trying to say is that this, these services are free. And so they will do the heavy lifting for you to pull the data together. So all you have to do is look at them. And to see where is my money going. And that's just the first step. Okay, having a clear grasp of your regular living expenses is essential to gaining control over your personal finances. You've got to diagnose the problem first before working on a cure. Nothing else in the seminar will matter if this step is not done. That's important to keep in mind. Because from this launching point, then you will see, okay, how much debt do I have? What's my monthly debt payment? Where, how much am I spending? Where can I cut? How much do I need to save? Where do I go with creating my personal budget? And those are all stuff that we're going to talk uh, about in the next session. So let's summarize real quick. Session one summary. God desires his people to give sacrificially but still build wealth and live a comfortable life. It is better to save a little early than a lot later thanks to the power of compound interest. It is better to live on less than to earn more. Money is a tool that's only... Good only to spend, to save, or to give away. And according to the Bible, we are prosperous when we have enough to meet our needs. And to determine our needs, we must track our living expenses. And so that brings us to the conclusion of our first session together. We're going to pray, and then we're going to take a break. And then we'll come back. I believe we start at 11, is that right? Or close to there. And uh, we're going to get into some nuts and bolts about debt and budgeting in particular. So let's bow our heads for prayer as we conclude here this morning. Father in heaven, thank you for being with us so far this morning. We thank you for the blessing of clear counsel of what to do with our money. Help us, Lord, to not be impoverished or to be rich, lest we forget you and say, who is the Lord? And let us be poor and covet and blaspheme our God's name. Pray, Lord, that you will help give us wisdom as we deal with these Principles and try to apply them in our lives. And bring us back for the next session as we continue this discussion, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.